This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect for the fourth week of November 2017. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thank you, David. As always, good to be with you too. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. To start out, Dan and I will be looking at the recent tax reform plan that was proposed by Republican lawmakers and the response of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to that tax plan. Next, we'll take up the issue of Roy Moore. He's a candidate for Senate from the state of Alabama who has recently been accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault. In the last segment of the show, we'll look at the recent letter written by Father Thomas Wynandy to Pope Francis and its repercussions. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview or something like that. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. And before we get started, just want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. Dan, how have you been? David, as always, very busy. (laughs) (laughs) So have you been traveling and where have you been traveling? Oh, all over the place. Most recently, the traveling was not ministry or work-related as such, but a little bit of relaxation, a long-planned trip with some friends, really in anticipation of my birthday, which is fastly approaching this week. Speaking of which, in the busyness and the craziness, the hectic life of, of ministry and work, I was you still get surprised sometimes. And I just have to give a shout-out to my students at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. I teach Monday nights uh, late in the evening. Class begins at 7 o'clock. And I was, I have to admit, very surprised because my birthday's not until Wednesday of this week. But on Monday night, as we were wrapping up class, all of a sudden I'm like, all right, I'll see you all next week. And then nobody moved. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, they want more? All right, let's make this a six-hour class. More Ronner. So uh, as it turns out, a number of the students, including one of the religious students who uh, had this class the, the previous year, organized a very generous and very kind birthday surprise. They they had a cake made, brought it in, paraded it into the class and sang happy birthday. And the, probably the, the coolest part of it was the image. They had one of these things where the supermarket or the bakery will, will take an image and put it. I don't know how they do it with that kind of frosting magic. But it was basically a, a, a photo of a chalk drawing that I've done, a regular one that my students will be familiar with, in talking about Karl Rahner's uh, transcendental theology, his understanding of personhood and subjectivity. And I always draw this image of a tree, a squirrel, and Karl Rahner himself as a stick figure. And somebody had taken a picture of that, uh, must have been during a break or something, and they transferred it onto this cake. And so it was very personal. It was very fun. It was, it was very entertaining. Everyone had a great blast, and we had delicious cake. So shout out to the awesome community at CTU, to the wonderful students that I have the great privilege of, of teaching and, and working with. Uh, I really appreciate it. Excellent. Good. Well, and and happy birthday in anticipation of that coming up on Wednesday. And by the time our listeners hear this, you will be able to email Dan at uh, (laughs) at our various ways of reaching him, either on social media or email, and wish him a happy birthday as well. Yeah. So, David, what have you been up to? So, I haven't been talking about this much, but in the starting in the month of October, I began writing a novel. I've seen some buzz about many words per day, and I'm like, damn, David, I am making us look bad. So I got into radio partly because I lost the ability to write. I had a crippling writer's block after my mother died in 2009, 
And that helped to usher me out of academia and helped to get me into radio. And I've been fighting for seven years to kind of get the writing back. And so I have tried literally everything under the sun. I had a student ask me one time what it was like, and I said it was like having lost a limb. And you remember how to pick up the coffee cup. You can want to pick up the coffee cup, but you've got no way to pick up the coffee cup. And somehow my arm has been growing back. And so beginning in September, I began a process of writing 750 words a day, and I gave myself permission to have them be just whatever words they were. They didn't have to be anything. They just had to be words. And I got into that discipline. And then at the beginning of October, I had sort of a a germ of an idea, a little seed crystal of an idea, and I began writing it, and it has blossomed now into about 130 pages of a novel. And it's it's a really bad first draft, but it's leveraging me back into the, the thought that I can go back to the places where I have various book contracts and say to them, yeah, it's actually likely that you'll get a manuscript from me in some reasonable amount of time. So this has actually been a very good turn of events for me, and I'm thankful for it. And I'm, I don't know any way – for anyone who is struggling with creative blockages – The only advice that I have is just keep pushing and find anything that you can to get you out of it because there's no shame in being blocked, but it feels a lot better to be unblocked. Amen. Well, that's, first of all, congratulations. Yeah. Second of all, I think it's so cool when particularly academics and academic sorts engage in in creative activities, particularly the writing of fiction, which is something I have no ability to do, no skills in. I have a friend who's a historical theologian who specializes in the medieval Franciscan tradition, a younger scholar to a lay theologian who also enjoys writing fiction, whether he enjoys it or not all the time. I mean, it's like any kind of writing. I'm sure your experience of 750 a day has yeah. not always been enjoyable. No. <laughs> um, but like all things, requires that discipline. And I just admire it so much because it engages a yeah. totally different part of your brain. But it sounds to me like you're describing it. it it's primed the pump because the skill is very similar, yeah. even if the the other lobe of the brain is what's being activated. This was what I realized coming out of this writer's block is that, you know, when when I wrote my dissertation, it was a 340-page dissertation. It was it was a gargantuan thing. But I never learned how to write. I never learned the discipline of writing. I never learned sitting down at the desk and just putting stuff out there. It was always I have to wait until I'm in the mood or I have to wait until I've plotted it all out or whatever. And I realized that that's just a really crappy way of going about writing and that writing happens much better when you actually sit down and write. I know that that's... (laughs) Those who are writers know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) And and, and those who aspire to that or are curious or want to give it a try, I mean, it's true. It's Part of it is the slog. You got to just... It, it's a it's like any other discipline. You want to learn how to be a better bicyclist. You yeah. you gotta you gotta do it every day or whatever dis, with discipline. Again, I have to say though, it, it's easy for me in some ways as a member of a religious community. I don't have children. Mm-hmm. I don't have a family in, in the kind of traditional sense. I mean, I have my Franciscan family, of course, but, but I don't have a lot of the same obligations that that you do. In the last episode, we talked about your uh, working for the Halloween costumes yeah. of your kids and, and running around <laughs> doing these kinds of things, getting their lunch ready, getting them off to school, etc. So to work on a project like that and to make such progress is even more impressive. And so I, I congratulate you on that. Well, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully at some point having a chance to share it with you and the many. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But for now, let's turn to our first topic. In the past couple of weeks, since the Republican legislators have not been able to kill health care, they have turned their attention to trying to revamp American tax policy. And so we have before us a very large revision of what has been our tax codes in the past, or at least a proposed revision. And it has some significant impacts for the poor, for the middle class, for those who are trying to go into graduate school, for those who are, who are working and trying to save And it has significant repercussions for those who are in the top 1% and the top 1% of the 1%. And so, I mean, there's a lot to say about just the proposed tax revisions as they are. But then also more interesting for me, perhaps, is the fact that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has also come out strongly against the tax reform bill, at least as it has been proposed. Their word, uh, just to give a TLDR version, is that it is unacceptable. But maybe let's take a step back and just sort of start out with what the tax reform bill is and kind of what it is proposing. I don't know that I can comment on it in uh, in a way that makes a case on behalf of its main kind of architects. And here we think of Speaker Paul Ryan and mm-hmm. others, because I think like the bishops in their statement of, of November 9th, it's easy to see through 
if, if you don't allow the wool to be pulled over your eyes, it's easy to see the kind of contradiction in terms. It's being described with talking points on the part of, of the GOP architects of this as something geared for the middle class, quote unquote. And, and that's a deliberative rhetorical tool because the middle class, as amorphous as it really is, becomes this stand-in. Everybody who isn't super wealthy wants to fancy themselves as, quote, middle class. And so by packaging this, it's, it's really <laughs> – I hate to use this – you know, these tired cliches, but it's it's really a wolf in, in sheep's clothing kind of thing. It looks like it's it's for the sheep, but it's actually something that's intended. Maybe it's not intended. I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt. I don't think I, – I, I like to think, <laughs> I should say, that that these legislators are not interested in actually harming men and women who are in precarious states of life, who are working poor, who are struggling, who are trying to make ends meet, who are students, who are disabled, who are facing health crises and the rest. I, I don't like to think that this is some sort of absolutely cruel and vindictive and malicious move. However, I don't think there's clarity of thought. I don't think there's honesty in an evaluation. And what's refreshing about this document from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is that they just call this what it is. If I can quote one passage here with, with regard to the proposed tax bill, uh, the bishops say that, as written, the proposal appears to be the first federal income tax modification in American history, and here's the key point, that will raise income taxes on the working poor while simultaneously providing a large tax cut to the wealthy, and they say this is simply unconscionable. And I think that's the real takeaway here. What's being proposed is tax cuts, and for certain people who identify as Republican or you know fiscally conservative and who embrace this trickle-down economy, this, this theory that has only existed in, in theory. It's never worked in practice. In some ways, it's, it's the capitalist equivalent of communism. In theory, Marxism and communism is a wonderful political structure. I mean, everybody's taken care of. Everybody supports one another. I mean, it's basically acts of the apostles, right? However, in practice, we know that that's not how things play out. Likewise, in 1986, with the tax cuts that were brought in by the Reagan administration, there was this effort, this promotion of this trickle-down economic system, and it, it did not result in what was intended. It, it's been deeply problematic. And so what the bishops are calling out here is that this trickle-down economy, this, this sort of commitment to this way of structuring our financial systems and our society is, is a ruse, well, and to, to expand on that, if our listeners didn't live through the 80s and are unfamiliar with the notion or the theory of trickle-down economics, basically it says if you cut taxes on the wealthy, they will share that benefit down the line and that that will lead to expansion of businesses, which will lead to more jobs, which will lead to a greater economic engine sort of running. But what we see in practice, what Dan just pointed out, is that profits of corporations go up exponentially since 2008 and the crash, but we haven't seen a similar rise in median wages of working class people. So what happens instead is that people hoard capital. The leaders of these businesses sort of sock away the capital or they give themselves tremendous bonuses, but they do not actually, it doesn't share out in the way that it is being, we're being told that it does. And so to call this a ruse is one thing, but one would think that after 35 years of having this rhetoric and having it be said again and again, you would think that finally somebody could point to the economic data and say, well, actually, we know it doesn't work. Well, they, uh, people are. Yeah. I mean, economists are. And, you know, I heard a very good interview with the New York Times's The Daily uh, podcast. I believe that's where I heard this. In any event, what, what we see is the it's, – it's like global climate change. The majority of kind of mainstream economists recognize that this is fine in theory, but in practice, it's been horrendous, as you've rightly noted. It's a similar sort of thing with, you know, climate change. It's, it's in a, interestingly, there's a Venn diagram that, that overlaps these two circles rather closely with those who are interested in promoting a denial or skepticism about uh, the human contributions to global climate change and the people who want to promote this theory of trickle-down economics that has also been debunked, you know, there's, there's this kind of bizarre denial. And so people are pointing this out. Op-eds are being written. Economists are, you know, speaking out against this and pointing to these things like you're describing. And yet there's this denial. I think, you know, to, to again, extend a benefit of the doubt to those who hear this and say, well, that sounds reasonable to me. In, in all honesty, it is, in theory, 
a self-contained logical proposal. But again, we have to look at what it looks like in practice. And as, as you just said, David, what the data reveal is that you don't have more money in the pockets of employees. Employers and corporations are not more inclined to hire or to open more jobs. They're more inclined to give themselves larger bonuses and to give uh, greater dividends to, st- to shareholders. And so that's really what's governing this is, again, the 1% or the 0.1 of the 1%. And uh, as the bishops rightly note here, that what's proposed really disadvantages and harms those who are in the most precarious parts of our uh, society. Well, and if we think about that, the very structure of corporate governance is designed against the notion of trickle-down economics actually working. Because the by law, who are corporations supposed to be benefiting? What are they designed to give the maximum amount of benefit to? And it's the shareholders. So at any given moment, an employee in that situation, there's no legal cause or cultural cause for the employee to be a focus of support or care by a corporation under capitalism. Instead, if you can squeeze the employee and maximize benefit to the shareholder, it's not just good fiscal policy. By law, the fiduciary responsibility of the governors of that corporation is to do exactly that. And I think that we've been seeing that happen again and again. I think the bishops are right to call this for what it is. I mean, one paragraph from the press release that I just want to point out, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, and I'm quoting now from the press release, households with an income of $20,000 to $40,000 per year will see their taxes raised in 2023, 2025, and again in 2027. Taxes will also increase on average taxpayers earning between $10,000 and $20,000 in 2025. At the same time, significant tax breaks for the very wealthy, including millionaires and billionaires, are projected for each year. Now, there's a piece of that that I want to lift out, and that is the dates. Why 2023? Why 2025? Why 2027? As opposed to tax breaks for the very wealthy happening every year. Why do we have odd year cycles and then an every year cycle? And I, I hate to be cynical, but the answer is simply this has to do with election cycles. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. So you, you raise it when there's no threat of, of having a blowback in a, in a given election year. Frankly, for our listeners, if you have been inclined to adopt this worldview and are not convinced on the face value of the research and the advisors that the bishops have consulted and as a matter of faith accept that, then I think you need to examine you know the, the hoodwinking that's going on, the fact that you're being played the fool – here, precisely as David pointed this out. And, and this is not the first time in the current Congress and the current executive administration where we've seen this kind of, you know, I'll be polite, shenanigans unfold. This, this is exactly what was happening with these failed attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Notice even with that last, well, the, the penultimate last-ditch uh, effort with the so-called skinny repeal, it wasn't supposed to take effect until after the next presidential election or at the very least after the next midterm election. And so this is, you know, again, it would be one of these things where those elected officials who are in office now want to see the immediate benefit and they want to kick the can of the truly devastating effects down the road. But they're coming. If this gets enacted, you may not see the devastation immediately. And the, I think, again, following your cynical, <laughs> quote unquote, cynical view, because I don't know that it's all cynical. I think it's pretty straightforward. I agree with you, David. I would say that they're hoping that the attention span of the American public is uh, short enough that they can get away with it. Well, and, and there's just one other line that stood out to me from the bishop's letter, and it's the bishops were saying that the deficit could, quote, be used as an argument to further restrict or end programs to help those in need, programs which are investments to help pull struggling families out of poverty, unquote. And when I read that line, it it reminded me of a letter that I wrote to Senator Bob Corker when I lived in Tennessee way back at the at the time of the financial collapse in 2008-2009 and the big government bailout. And one of the things that I wrote to Lamar Alexander and Bob Corker at the time was, you know, here's what I see coming, senators. I see you giving a huge care package to these major corporations that have gotten us into this financial meltdown. And then you're going to turn around and you're actually going to use that as a reason to say, and we can't give health care to people and we can't give, we can't give social support to people because we just don't have any money anymore. And for me, the problem with what I'm seeing is that when we need to buy another bomb, when we need to finance another war, money falls out of the sky. Mm-hmm. When we need to care for those who are the least among us, those who are the most vulnerable among us, when we need to actually care for children, when we need to actually care for struggling families, we keep getting told that that's not financially responsible. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, I and I just you know as I think about that, I, and so you you said that maybe it's not cynicism. I I hate to think that this is actually the way that the system has been rigged, but it seems to me like this is the way that the system has been rigged. It causes me to come back to this again and again and just feel really despondent. And I'm very very thankful to to have our our leadership in the Catholic Church at least for once standing pat on a really strong call to be against this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, props, as it were, to uh, to the USCCB for responding in, in short order, you know, really quickly and promptly and intelligently uh, with with their uh, letter. You know, one other thing I would add, too, when we're talking about a cynical view, I don't think it's necessarily cynical to think about the hypocrisy that's unfolding, too. You talked about, you know, when there's a need for uh, more weapons or the military budget, there always seems to be money for this. The other thing that seems hypocritical to me, and again, this isn't exclusively a religious-based concern, but there are ramifications for the way one practices their faith and understands society. The fiscal priority, the one of the kind of pillars of the GOP and those who are like fiscal hawks has always been this deficit reduction concern. And, you know, I heard a commentator recently on, on a politics uh, interview, politics program, say that, isn't it curious, it seems that Paul Ryan and friends are only concerned about the deficit, the U.S., uh, you know, the national deficit increasing when there's a Democratic administration. But as you rightly point out, when there's a call for a military increase, when there's a call for major tax cuts for the wealthy, we can think of the George W. Bush administration where money was spent, it was just bleeding out. And so the, you know, the surplus that existed in the 90s after the Clinton administration was completely wiped out and the deficit was grown. When President Obama comes into office, all of a sudden then Mitch McConnell and friends, John Boehner, later Paul Ryan, you know, now they start crying foul and we, we can't spend anything for fear of growing the deficit. And as you rightly point out, oftentimes the agenda is is very different. It's spending geared toward a social safety net through or caring for the most precarious, those most in need, as opposed to paying for military expansion or tax cuts for the wealthy. Now I'm going to get really cynical. So when we drop a bomb, that actually increases shareholder benefit in corporations because we have a tangible product that has been expensed and then we need to replace it. And so these people who oftentimes have come from the boards of major corporations, see that as a tangible social good because they are increasing. You know, if you think about someone like Eisenhower saying the business of this country is business, you know, we have then the model for for where this is. When you care for the poor, it's not a one-quarter increase in revenue that happens. That's a long-term investment that maybe give a return on that investment maybe years down the line. And so it's easy to see only to the next election cycle or to the next quarterly statement. And that, to me, is what drives the most cynicism is when when I see how short-sighted the solutions are and the problems that we're facing are so longitudinal. They are so, they are so long in their horizon. And to me, when I think about what I want the leadership of the church to be doing, I want the leadership of the church to be having a long-horizon vision but I want them to be able to speak to the moment, and here's why I say that. My wife used to be an editor at U.S. Catholic Magazine, and she would say to me ruefully that whenever there was something that would that would affect uh, the question of, say, abortion in the public sphere, she said that she, she could, as soon as, as something was put out by the Department of Health, she could expect that within an hour she would have a fax of a statement from the USCCB. But when there were items that had to do with the death penalty or items that had to do with with war or the expansion of the aggressions that we had in the Middle East, she would wait and wait and wait, and the USCCB would not speak. And so, you know, I, I don't want to mischaracterize the leadership of the Catholic Church, but I will say that when I see them being responsive, when I see them putting out a strong public statement on something other than the kind of bright line morality issues, I'm heartened. Because for me, that gives me a sense that maybe the leadership is actually realizing that there are many, many factors that go into the care of families and the care of unborn children that have nothing to do with directly affecting the question of abortion, but instead have to do with, for example, the economic precarity of many families. Right. And I think that this is a pro-life issue. If you're for life, you can't just be for unborn life. You have to be for the living as well. Amen to that. Well, with that, let's turn from this and take a break. Thank you very much for listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. 
This episode of The Francis Effect is sponsored by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. I'm David. I think you might have forgotten one there. Let's see. Ah, oh yeah. Also books by Father Dan Haran. Check out his latest book at franciscanmedia.org. What's that book called again? It's got the great title, God is Not Fair, and other reasons for gratitude. Amen to that. And whether you purchase a book or make a donation, your support helps Franciscan Media continue to fill the world with Franciscan spirit. Again, that's franciscanmedia.org. You can get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX. That's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X. If you choose to donate, tell them Frank sent you. Give us a mention in the comments for your donation. Let them know that their message is getting out there through the Francis Effect. We appreciate it very much. Welcome back to the Francis Effect podcast. I'm Dan Haran, and as always, I'm joined by David Dalt, my co-host here. Every couple of weeks, the two of us get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a Senate candidate from Alabama named Roy Moore. This is the former judge who was removed from his position as a judge at least well twice before and has been a rather controversial figure in the state of Alabama and nationally. Among the many things he's known for is his staunch opposition to same-sex marriage, his understanding that the First Amendment includes the right to erect public monuments like the Ten Commandments in, in public spaces. And he fancies himself, he presents himself as something of this kind of Christian champion slash cowboy slash kind of renegade who sees himself as the arbiter of what's right and just according to his own, I would say, idiosyncratic Christian belief. He has in recent days and weeks been accused on a number of occasions for sexual misconduct, in this case, sexual assault and harassment of, of women, but not just in terms of sexual assault or harassment of adult women, but of teenagers, of children as well, including, as one account, one allegation presented, a woman as young as 14 at the time. And so these are uh, deeply disturbing allegations. They follow in a long pattern of public uh, allegations and revelations of sexual assault and harassment. We have talked previously on this program about the Harvey Weinstein case, the Me Too campaign, and so forth. This continues to add to that. But what's particularly egregious about this situation, not only is this, not only are these allegations related to minors, but we we have in this political environment, those who are defending or and continue to support Roy Moore, despite the fact that others, particularly in the Republican leadership, have called for his stepping out of the race. David, what do you think about this? What's going on here? Well, I, I want to give a couple of background pieces, and one has to do with the notion of consent, and particularly the notion of legal consent. So we've encountered allegations that at least one of the people who was being approached by Roy Moore was a person who was 14 years old. And there have been a variety of responses to that from across the spectrum, including from some evangelical leaders and other leaders who have quoted the Bible to say, well, you know, Joseph was an elder husband of a teenage bride, Mary, those sorts of things. So I just want to cut through all of that crap right now and just say, in America, in every state, there are statutes on the books that say that there are ages under which, no matter how consenting, how many times a person may say yes, their legal consent is not allowed to be legal consent. That anyone who is under a certain age is not in a position legally to give consent for sexual activity to a person who is over the age of majority. If you're you an 18-year-old and you're dating a 14-year-old in Alabama, you're below the age of consent. And regardless of whether or not the mother, the father, or anyone else approves, that is an illegal activity. And that comes to where we get the term statutory rape. It is rape by nature of the statute itself that has to do with the age of consent. And that's why, if I can jump in there yeah. too, in this question of consent, it's you know, there are ethical ramifications here, but, yeah. but as you're pointing out, they're, they're juridical ones as well. Yeah. You know, this. what we mean by the statutes here is that by virtue of one's age, they're not able to give consent. The analog here is by virtue of one's 
developmental ability or one's duress or these other things. There are other aspects that mitigate the ability for someone to both juridically and morally consent to something, including something as serious as uh, of, of sexual behavior. So that's why, for instance, when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church and our policies of creating a safe and healthy environment for ministers and for parishioners and the rest, is that we don't just say minors, that age is the only factor. We also talk about vulnerable adults because there are people with developmental disabilities. There are people who are impaired, let's say, because of medication or because of other circumstances, that they are not able to grant consent. There's another thing here too, and this is, let's just say that this the the person in question the person who alleges this sexual assault was of the age of majority nevertheless there there are these other questions about power dynamics because Roy Moore is supposed to i think it's about in his 30s maybe 32 or something at the time so you have an, a major age difference you know 14 to 32 it's more than twice the age but then you also have this thing that he was a public servant as the district attorney at that time and we have these very disturbing reports uh, by corroborated by witnesses in the moment, in the not in the moment, but contemporaneously in the, around the same time that knew about this, that corroborate that he threatened this young woman by saying, "You're just a girl, you're just a kid, and I am the district attorney. No one will ever believe you, and I will go after you if you ever say anything about this." So disturbing. When I was in college, I interned for a public defender in my hometown. I grew up in, in, the, in the Deep South. You know, I grew up basically on the border of Georgia and Alabama. This is not behavior that is limited just to the jurisdiction where Roy Moore was a district attorney. There were routinely stories that circulated around the courthouse about district attorneys in the jurisdiction where I served that they had fathered children out of wedlock, that they had used their advantage to pressure people who were in the dock basically for sexual favors as a way of getting more lenient sentencing or lenient charging. I think that this is this is something that we have seen in the past few weeks. Men in power tend to utilize that power for grotesque sexual advantage. And that is not just something that is isolated to one individual. It is a systemic societal problem that I'm glad that we're now beginning to speak about. But it remains a problem, particularly when those who are involved in something like the justice system, where the, the deficits can be so great, where the threats can be so acute, where the whole apparatus of the state is arrayed behind you, as in the example that you just said of the allegation of, I'm the district attorney and I'll go after you with everything that I have if you ever tell anyone about this. Using age as an advantage against someone is reprehensible. Using power against someone is reprehensible. Using the apparatus of the, the juridical and carceral aspects of the state is, is awful. And if I may, it's an allegory to the way in which we saw the clergy abuse crisis play out, where similar to the power of the state, the very power of God sometimes was, was invoked to keep people quiet. And I, I, I'm, I'm stuttering right now because I'm even thinking about it, it just makes me apoplectic. Yeah, it's very disturbing. But we have another layer here, too. So, so we've discussed, you know, the allegations, the, the disturbing nature of, of what's being suggested, what's being uncovered here. How The, the thing that, that I find additionally disturbing in following your uh, the kind of allegory or the analogy with the clergy sexual abuse crisis, on the one hand, as I've said, this is not in any way a mitigation of the horrendous acts that, that took place. However, one can understand that these things do happen uh, and they need to be prosecuted. They need to be identified. There needs to be correction. So, you know, one thing that I'm familiar with, like, you know, and other people have said before is that sexual abuse happens in the home. Sexual abuse happens at the doctor's office. Sexual abuse happens in the classroom. That sexual abuse happens in the church is not surprising, or in this case happens in the political realm is not surprising. What's dis most disturbing, or additionally, I should say, additionally disturbing, is the cover-up or the justification that follows. When people know about it, and this is what, again, is, is the major scandal behind the Harvey Weinstein things. Not only is he a sexual predator, right, according to these allegations, but that everybody seemed to know about it and couldn't, for whatever reason, do something about this or address it until now. I bring all this up because in the case of Roy Moore, what is completely and utterly perplexing to me and disturbing and frustrating is how people continue to defend him. I don't know. Is this, is this the age of Trump? Is this, what, what is this that 
when somebody would have this much evidence, you know, to highlight the seriousness of these accusations and so forth, that he would continue to persist. I, I don't know what to make of that. So I want to speak to a couple of those pieces. So in in the one hand, we have the information bubble that we have been aware of for a long time, that people who live in certain streams of news traffic will look at the world in a certain way. I mean, just to give an example, there have been times over the past 11 months since Trump has been in office that I have had conversations with my father who lives in Phoenix City, Alabama, about something that I had just heard on NPR And he'll say, what are you talking about? And I'll say, well, this is breaking national news. He goes, I haven't seen anything about it. You know, he lives in a news bubble down in in central Alabama where he doesn't always get access to. Now, that doesn't mean that he I mean, he could easily turn on NPR. He could give himself access to others. But the news streams that come to him naturally by part of just having the television on or whatever don't give him the information that would allow him to know about these things. So on the one hand, we have people who who are saying that these are trumped-up charges, that they're just being used. And if you look at Twitter, if you look at, at, at the responses to this from from the right and the evangelical right or certain aspects of the right and certain aspects of the evangelical right, they will simply say, well, you know, if you, if you can't get racism to stick, if you can't get bigotry to stick, well, now let's try child molester because that didn't work. So now let's try that. And so the thought is that these are just witch hunts. And so any amount of corroborating evidence is seen as suspect because – it's, you know, that he has not been proved guilty or this was 30 years ago or what have you. Two things about that that I think are good responses from my friends on the right. And one would be Mitch McConnell just coming out and saying, I believe the women. And, I, and there are five women now, not just the one from last week who brought these accusations. So he says, I believe the women. The other is Mitt Romney. And I, I find myself, you know, I, it's weird for me to be cheering Mitt Romney. It's weird for me to be saying rah, rah, Mitch McConnell. But Mitt Romney basically saying, you know, an election is not a is not a court of law. The standards are different, but it's very important for the public to hear fully the allegations and make their. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but to make their electoral choices with a full complement of the allegations out there, and then make a decision. So he's encouraging for this public process to continue, not to be hushed up, not to be tamped down, because it's important for people to know who they're electing. That unlike a person who is just a kind of civilian, when you're actually going for public office and you're trying to be elected to one of the highest offices, one of the most powerful offices in the land, people need to know the character of the person that they're electing. Well, and I think, unfortunately, what we saw play out in the presidential election of 2016 is that people knew of the character of the the Republican candidate, you know, then Donald Trump, now President Trump. And the fact that he admitted on tape to alleged, you know, sexual assault and at least his opinion of the possibility of that seems reprehensible. And yet he was still elected. I think that gave permission to, to a lot of people to say, well, you know what, what I need to do is is to be more like Trump. I just need to double down. And so I can do whatever I want as long as I never apologize and I never let go and I never, you know, have to face – I never face the consequences. So I, I find that deeply disturbing. I think, you know, bringing in kind of our, our faith perspective, which is probably implicit in what we've talked about so far, I, I just think that this is a moral – an absolutely important moral issue. I, you, we heard from lots of folks. We saw in reports – that a lot of well-meaning Christian men and women, Roman Catholic, evangelical, et cetera, you know, kind of held their nose even in the wake of all these allegations and admittances on the part of Donald Trump last year and said, well, what I really care about is this one issue. Let's say Supreme Court justices in the subject of abortion or X, Y, or Z and used what, what they considered to be an unsavory means to a better end. And what I would suggest is that at least from a Catholic perspective, that doesn't really fly. You know, it, you can't justify the means by the ends in this case. And and I think what we see here unfolding in the case of Roy Moore is you have to really ask yourself, first of all, what the evidence presents. He's been removed from his office as a judge twice because of violating this thing called the Constitution. The rule of law, basically. The rule of law, yeah. How can you have somebody hold that office who doesn't recognize its validity or feels that he's above that above the law? 
And so it would not be surprising. It's perfectly in keeping. These allegations, you know, I believe the women because for a variety of reasons. But, you know, even if you were skeptical, you have to say, well, wait a minute. This guy already has a proven track record of thinking he's above of the law and doesn't have to apply, you know, uh, doesn't have to apply the law to his own life, et cetera. I, I, I think it's, it's worth noting that, you know, we have to draw the line somewhere. And if you're a person of faith and find, you know, whether you believe it in the moment, whether you recognize it as such in the moment, um, these allegations, that is, you need to ask yourself, what kind of person do I understand myself to be? What am I willing to do for what end? Can you justify something that's ostensibly good by promoting and endorsing and supporting something that's so uh, reprehensible? And I think it's just a call to conscience. I, I think one really has to ask themselves, you know, what is such a good in and of itself that such evil things could be supported or looked, you know, looked beyond, et cetera, to bring it about? And I don't think the remote possibilities of things like your own understanding of, of uh, economic reform or, you know, one stated position on social or moral issues like abortion or same-sex marriage or whatever, that these are, are ends worthy of such reprehensible means. So what are we to make of, at, at last count, it was 53 evangelical leaders who signed a letter of support in favor of Roy Moore to say basically that they that they were standing with him. What are, what are we to make when our co-religionists take a stand in favor of someone who we find to be morally reprehensible. What what should we as people of faith say to those who share our faith in those moments? Well, frankly, I don't know that we share faith in all respects in this regard, you know, and so I think we need to start there. Uh, there's a reason why we're not in communion with one another, and they're deeply theological and historical. So that's one thing. Good point. But I also think that there are practical dimensions here, too. The Roman Catholic Church is very, very clear on, you know, and we see this in the 1993 Pontifical Biblical Commission's document on the interpretation of Scripture, that there's one mode of interpretation Roman Catholics are effectively forbidden from engaging in um, that's prohibited, and that's what's called the Biblicist or literal reading of Scripture. And so, you know, there's no, no Roman Catholic can justify pointing to St. Joseph, as, as you mentioned earlier, that some of these evangelicals have been doing and say, well, this justifies statutory rape. Or this justifies sexual harassment. First of all, you have to ask yourself, what are you suggesting about the figure of Joseph of Nazareth, right? What are you saying about the Holy Family, first and foremost? So what I would say is you can, you can approach it from a number of ways, right? One is on the theological or scriptural level, which is to have a conversation about how do you understand this? I don't know that that would be entirely fruitful because I think, honestly, and I, and I, have, um, I have the benefit of the doubt, really, for people who... Uh, identify in a public sense uh, as a Christian or of another religious tradition, I think they mean well, but I also think they're in denial. And so when you're doing this sort of thing, there's vincible ignorance here where somebody is, you know, willfully looking another way or trying to proof text something to make sense of a reprehensible means to justify what they seem to be, what they seem to believe is a, uh, is a, is a good or a greater good. And yeah, so what do we say? I, I'm not really sure how you convince somebody. Otherwise, I think we model and we speak and we demonstrate from our own lived tradition where we draw the line and where we think things are uh, inappropriate, like in this case. I, and, and you just hit something that makes me want to blow a gasket. And, and let me blow my gasket for just a moment. So in the Catholic tradition, when we look at Joseph, who is part of the Holy Family, in our way of interpreting that story, in our way of reading that text— the whole reason why Mary, who was a dedicated virgin in the temple, in our understanding, is, is sort of betrothed to Joseph is, in our way of telling the story, he's already had a family, he's an elder man, and he, he understands that his job is to protect her and not to touch her in a sexual way. Okay, so that, that Catholic understanding is that Joseph is the ultimate protector of femininity the ultimate protector of, of the, the, the safety of this, of this young woman, and to then turn around and use that story, as some of these evangelicals have, as a justification for a grown man pawing a child. It makes me angry. It makes me, it makes me sick in the pit of my stomach. 
it, it, it makes me want to kind of double down on the bright lines of what makes me a Catholic. And these, these interpretations, these stories are important. And when you, as you just said, when you just read the literal text, you can take a certain interpretive stance away from that. I like very much what the Catholic Church has done with the story of Joseph in terms of the notion of the protecting of women, the protecting of femininity, the protecting of those who are vulnerable. Uh, I think that it's built in in some ways in our tradition in a way that we don't always resource properly. But for me, that is a piece that needs to be championed at this moment. You can't use Joseph that way. That's that's irresponsible to use Joseph that way. Yeah, I would just say, too, that, you know, that's one one way to approach uh, the tradition of Joseph in the Holy Family. You know, scripture scholars and historians debate and uh, are, are constantly working toward clarification. But I think one thing that is also worth noting just to, maybe to kind of wrap up our segment on this on this topic is to say that the historical information we have about this figure Joseph is incredibly limited. How old he was, et cetera, et cetera. This is based on tradition. This is not elucidated. It's not clear in the plain reading of Scripture. So uh, on all of these grounds, there's there's a lot of need for interpretation. And of course, every reading of Scripture, even if it's ostensibly a plain reading of Scripture, is a form of interpretation. And on that, maybe we should take a break and we'll come back in just a few moments. Stay with us with the Francis Effect podcast. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. I've been following a story, Dan, that has to do with a person who is a brother priest and also within your Franciscan tradition, Father Thomas Winandy. I want to be very careful about how I ask these questions because I recognize that when speaking of a brother priest, when speaking of someone in the Franciscan tradition, you want to act with charity. But I also recognize that this is a man who has who has uh, taken some public stances that we can certainly analyze and look deeper into. And so for, for those who are unfamiliar with this name, Father Thomas Wynandy was the former head of doctrine for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. He took an opportunity this past summer to write an open letter or a letter that was later made public to the Holy Father, Pope Francis, laying out his deep concerns about the pontificate in general and some of the positions that the Pope had taken in some of the papal encyclicals. We can dig into the particulars of that letter, but first and foremost, I just want to give you an opportunity, Dan, to sort of to speak about this and to give us your perspective on this, both as a fellow priest and as a fellow person in the Franciscan tradition. Who is Father Wynandy? Well, he is, as you rightly pointed out, former executive director of the Bishop's Committee on Doctrine and Canonical Affairs, and he's probably best known to most Catholics, certainly most Catholic theologians, for his role in going after a renowned theologian, Sister Elizabeth Johnson, a distinguished professor of theology at Fordham University, for what effectively were misreadings on his part. And in the, at the end of the day, her response was both incredibly balanced and, and measured and insightful and intelligent and patient with what was, you know, again, I, I hate to use this term witch hunt because it's being used so much now in the, in the, in the news, but was effectively that. What, what it came down to was ideological differences. Wynandy, theologian himself, has been very, a lot of his work has, has pertained to what's oftentimes called the problem of God. So things relating to God the Father, the first part of Thomas's uh, Summa, he, he's written, for instance, on the impassibility of God and, you know, how do we make sense of Jesus Christ being the incarnate word, right, fully divine and suffering on the cross and this sort of thing with this question, you know, does God suffer? And he comes down very strongly on the fact that no, God does not. And he takes issue with some of the concerns that Sister Elizabeth Johnson and other theologians have raised about, well, in that case, was Jesus Christ fully human too, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to get into the weeds on that. So that's when he's best known. He came out of that position in 2013, but has been an advisor nonetheless to the U.S. bishops subsequently in, in matters of doctrine and so forth. 
I have nothing to say about him as a, as a brother priest. I, I know nothing about his pastoral ministry, and it's not my place to say. I have very little to say as well about his Franciscan identity. He is a part of the First Order, as am I. There are three branches, the OFMs, of which I'm a part, uh, the OFM Capuchins, of which uh, Father Wynandy is a part, and the OFM Conventuals. And and I have no reason to to question anything that has to do with his religious vocation, nor is that my place. I do, as a theologian, a fellow theologian, have many concerns about his positions and about his interpretations, and more importantly, around this particular letter, uh, the reasoning. Now, in way of full disclosure, it's been a while since I've had Dan Haran full disclosure hour. Back in 2011, when uh, Father Wynandy went after Sister Elizabeth Johnson, I offered a lot of commentary about that online. And those resources are still available. Those articles are available online. I wasn't the only one, but I was uh, very much in a public way responding to and offering commentary on what was unfolding in that critique of uh, Professor Johnson and in Wynandy's uh, responses back and forth. So people can check that out as well. So this is not my first time coming across Tom Wynandy. He raises in this open letter, first of all, I want to say something about how he himself in this letter and in interviews around it reached the decision to write an open letter criticizing Pope Francis on five points. And the way he did it is he was in Rome, it seems, last spring, and he was really struggling uh, internally, you know, which makes sense with, with church teaching. He's not alone. All people do that with various levels of teaching. In fact, this is something I was just teaching my students the other night. Lumen Gentium calls for with this level of teaching is obsequium religiosum, this idea of a religious surrendering openness to assimilating the teaching, the tradition, but with a recognition that it may be difficult and people struggle with that in a personal way. What Wynandy does here, though, is not that obsequium religiosum. What he does in this case is verge on public dissent. Dissent is, as we've discussed in previous programs, not just asking questions, not just struggling with church teaching, but effectively rejecting it or making it a public concern. So that's one thing. But how he came about it, I think, is really bizarre. And so he talks about how he was really praying. He doesn't know if he should do this or not. And he, he as, the, as his telling goes, asks the Lord for a sign that he should write this letter, uh, this open letter criticizing the Holy Father. And the way he does it is in this rather superstitious way that if I encounter somebody while in Rome that I haven't seen in a long time, then I'll take that as the sign that I should write this letter. Even more than that, there's also, if, if this person that I haven't seen for a long time says something very specific, a specific phrase, and in his account of this, he also says, well, there has to be, they have to say something to me that I, that, you know, yeah. wouldn't be normal for them to say. I just want to say that's magical thinking and superstitious. Simony. It's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. And that last time I checked is, is considered, uh, you know, rejected by the church. So I, I just want to say that the, the premise for this whole thing is bizarre and uh, questionable and raises very serious questions about the state of mind and the state of, of clarity and thought of, of Father Wynandy. Now, clearly, he's a, he's a professional theologian. He's demonstrated, though I don't agree with him on a lot of his points, I do respect his, his background, his training, his qualifications. I do have to ask questions, though, if you're practicing simony in this case, if, you, you know, if you're living this kind of superstitious, magical thinking, if this is what governs a public statement of a theologian against the Pope and church teaching, I don't know if that's a deal breaker, but it makes me wonder, like, are, why are we even bothering taking this seriously? Well, and I, I want to lift up a paragraph from, from his open letter and get your take on it. And I, I have a very strong take on it. And it's, it's a paragraph in, in this letter, uh, and we'll post this on the, the show notes, but in the letter, he goes through several points, in four main points, and I, I'm going to deal with the, with the third main point that he brings up each in its own paragraph in this letter. And so in this paragraph, he says, faithful Catholics can only be disconcerted by your, Pope Francis's, choice of some bishops, men who seem not merely open to those who hold views counter to Christian belief, but who support and even defend them. What scandalizes believers and even some fellow bishops is not only your having appointed such men to be shepherds of the church, but that you also seem silent in the face of their teaching and pastoral practice. This weakens the zeal of the many women and men who have championed authentic Catholic teaching over long periods of time, often at the risk of their own reputations and well-being. As a result, many of the faithful who embody the census fidelium are losing confidence in their supreme shepherd. I just want to examine the rhetoric that's happening here because to me, it's disturbing. When you say that those who agree with you are the faithful Catholics, 
are the authentic Catholics, are those who are championing the true sense of the faith, the sensus fidelium. You're laying out a very particular type of Catholicism, and it's one that is drawing bright lines, and it's drawing bright lines against the baptized. One of the first pieces of canon law that we encounter when we look at canon law is that any time that we are publicly challenging or questioning another person who is of our faith, we have to remember, first of all, that they are baptized believers, they are brothers and sisters, we must approach them with charity. And even though I do feel like Father Wanandi is attempting to write this in a spirit of charity and, and fraternity, I take serious issue whenever anyone says, well, I have the authentic Catholic faith. I'm part of the true traditional Catholic faith, and he uses traditional at, at other points here. But you'll find as you read through this letter, authentic and traditional sort of showing up as if they were self-evident and not disputed aspects of the faith, as if these were not things that theologians and lay people have a right to discuss. For me, particularly when, we, when you're dealing with something as acutely complex as family life in the 21st century on a global scale, when you have arranged marriages in one section of the church and the complete libertine freedom of, of things that we have here in the United States, to act as if there's a bright line, as if there's, there's a self-evident authentic Catholicism, a self-evident traditional Catholicism, to me is slippery, it's dangerous, and it's not coming from a place of charity towards baptized brothers and sisters. So that's my take on this paragraph, but I'd love to get your feeling on it as well. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think that Wynandy is in a he he had his appointment at the USCCB of a different era, a different era of it uh, began shortly after the election of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and he served largely throughout that pontificate, throughout that ministry as, as Benedict as Bishop of Rome. And what we saw in terms of the church leadership that Wynandy seems to be thinking about in terms of episcopal appointments and the and the rest really were reflected a different sort of priority when it came to identifying church leaders who would be best fit for that office. And I would say that, um, and this is my interpretation, that what we see by and large in that era are those who were appointed because of a prowess, because of some skill set that represented what I would call a managerial class. They were, I assume, good men who may not have exhibited leadership or the independent kind of autonomy that is what Lumen Gentium says is the role of the local ordinary of the bishop, right? The church is always local. It gathers around the local bishop. The bishop is not the vicar of the pope. The bishop, as the church teaches, is the vicar of Christ. And as the primary pastoral minister and the primary teacher of a local church has a, a whole lot of authority, the pope is the first among equals in this regard. He is not the CEO of Roman Catholicism. Nevertheless, Moynandi seems to adopt this understanding of managerial oversight rather than Episcopal leadership as the norm. So it seems to be one of the things that governs his interpretation and one of his critiques. The other thing is that their teaching and pastoral practice, I, I find that deeply disturbing that he's highlighting this because it seems to me a dog whistle rather than an explicit critique or concern. He seems to be signaling something that at one point bishops were in keeping with church teaching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or doing things in terms of pastoral practice that were right. And now there is this somehow radical shift. I don't know where he's getting that other than to say that he is of a sort. He is of an ideological view that the role of the managerial office from his perspective of the bishop is to keep people in order, keep them in line, and everybody says the same thing. Well, that's just not what the theology of the Episcopacy is all about. It's primarily one both of teaching and pastoral practice, and he kind of acknowledges that. But this idea of Catholics, individual Catholics who have, quote, championed authentic Catholic teaching are losing confidence. I, I, just, I just think he's, he's, mis, he, he's wrong. He's, he's misunderstanding some fundamental ecclesiology. He's misunderstanding the theology of Pope Francis's teaching and ministry, I just think that he has a different view of church and of ministry than that which is actually rooted in the documents of the Second Vatican Council and which should and ought to govern our practice as ministers and as teachers in the church. Well, and I, I want to ask you one other piece about this, and that is when we encounter church leaders who begin to say that they have this vision of the church that is more authentic and more real and more true— 
than the church that we actually see existing in flesh and blood on the ground in real life, we have a name for that. We call them Protestants. I mean, that was Martin Luther's notion. That was the notion of of any reformer that somehow they have a better vision for the church than the church that actually exists. Now, I realize that that is a, a sort of a strange position in some ways. I don't want to overstate that position, but it is at least the notion that I see animating something like the Society of St. Pius X and the Lefevrists, those who ultimately were determined to be schismatics. Uh, I also see it some way in the writings of Martin Luther, this notion that somehow they have primary access to a more authentic church than the church that actually exists in the episcopacy and in the laity. And to me, I find that deeply troubling. Yeah. No, it is. No, that's right. I don't know if I would characterize it. I mean, you you were raised in, or at least identified in, in as a Protestant for a long time. I was so, trained that way in, in many, yeah. in most of my academic training was in Protestant settings. Yeah, yeah. So, so I defer to you in, in terms of, of your perspective on that. I don't know that I would characterize it as, as Protestant as such, but I, th- I think you bring up a very good point, which is there is this kind of schismatic separatist sort of attitude presumed here. I think what's disturbing too is that the implication, the reading between the lines, the way he's phrased this is that he's suggesting that actually that Pope Francis is the schismatic or something. Yeah. Like, we've done this the right way. Now you've come along and changed things. Well, that was the that was the rhetoric of the Lefevres as well. I mean, the entirety of, of that schismatic movement was based on the notion that somehow Vatican II had digressed from the true deposit of faith, and it wasn't a legitimate council. In fact, they went back to say that Pope John Paul II was not a legitimate pope. I mean, it goes it goes deep, and you oh, yeah. you you think about traditionalists who who want to look back at the at the pontificate of John Paul II as some golden age, but you find the ultra traditionalists, the the schismatic traditionalists, who say that even that's illegitimate. But we find examples of that even now. I had a a, a conversation with a, a good woman; she was a, a Benedictine sister who was at one point volunteering in the school where my children go, and we were having a conversation. And this was right after the elevation of Pope Francis, and she she simply said, "Well, you know." Ben- Benedetto, Benedict, is my real pope. And she sort of kissed, you know, she sort of kissed the air and whatever. And, and say, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I understand that. But at the same time, no. That's, no, no that's, there's only one pope. That's not the way that these <laughs> things work. Yeah, and no, it's not. As, as a person who is a theologian in the church, as a person who is under the mandatum with a bishop, I feel strongly that there is there's an important place for visible and public unity with the teachings of the church and with the the leadership of the church. I also think that there are very legitimate points to question that. Say, for example, in the case of of protection of ritual abusers in the sex abuse crisis, like there are points where the episcopacy needs to be called out, but that's not on points of doctrine, and that's not point on points of doctrinal disagreement. That's on points of of simple human decency and the law. Yeah. Well, I think there's probably more we can say about yeah. this. I think it's it's good to ramp up and say, just to highlight that this is unfolding. In some ways, I feel like Wynandy doesn't deserve much more attention. Uh, maybe one way to close up this segment is just to, to note that Cardinal DiNardo, current president of the USCCB, wrote a statement following the removal or the resigning of Wynandy from his role as an advisor to the Committee on Doctrine for the USCCB. And a lot of people have found that wanting in that uh, Donardo talks a lot about we need to have charity on both sides. We need to understand one another, et cetera, and doesn't speak strongly enough and reiterate strongly enough the church's teaching with regard to the role of the bishop and these sorts of things, which, which would really call for, ironically, a fraternal correction, not of the Holy Father, but of, of Wynandy in this case. So... With that, I think, uh, you know, we continue as best we can. You and I, we're theologians. A lot of our listeners are, too, to continue to ask the right questions, the good questions, but, you know, not shy away from challenging one another in the guild, you know. Well, I think that we should also emphasize that we, we need to be in prayer for one another. Yeah, that's and a good Certainly point. praying for you, and I, I, I covet your prayers for me, but also be praying for those with whom we disagree. And whether that is someone like Roy Moore or, or Father Wynandy, or anyone with whom we may have doctrinal or ideological disagreements to understand that, you know, what we're called to do here is to recognize each other as, as creatures of God and to, and to honor that even when we have deep disagreements. So with that, let's wrap up the show. And Dan, as always, thank you for being here with me, and I'm looking forward to sitting down with you in a couple of weeks. Same here, David. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. 
We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.